so within Iceland, maybe the most beloved museum, the place that most Icelanders make sure that was on my list is Petra Stone Collection out on the eastern coast where only 3% of Icelanders live. And there is a collection made by a woman who went for a walk most every day of her life. And on most every walk, found a stone that was worth taking home. If you were looking for something to collect, not that any collection begins so sensibly, but if you were thinking of ideal collectibles, you wouldn't be wrong to pick something hardy. No finicky temperature or humidity requirements, no delicate parts at risk with every dusting. Ideally, you'd want a thing that could forego even the secondary upkeep of shelter, a thing inclined to weather the outdoors with no special preservation. And if those some things happen to be free for the taking, your collecting would be limited only by the fortune to find them and the effort to get them home. I sometimes think the twin attractions of Petra's stone collection are the plainly extraordinary and the terrifically familiar. It's not just the volume and quality and sheer fact of so much Chalcedonian spar existing at all, let alone in one place. We marvel at this singular woman, Sisyphus reversed, admire her independence and diligence and taste. We kneel here at this museum of her commitment, at its altar of daily ritual, awed at its yield, even as we suspect in our secret hearts that we too could have done it. We've been known to walk up a beautiful hill. We know enough to bend when something shines and beckons. If only we'd had the time or were born in such a conducive landscape, or if any little variable of history or circumstance shifted ever so slightly, surely we would have done the very same thing. Perhaps Petra reminds us of what we already suspect that the world is chock-a-block with untold wonders there for the taking, ready to be uncovered at any moment if only we keep our eyes open. We flatter ourselves that we are Petra. We wouldn't countenance the naysayers. We wouldn't fear the storms that come up in an instant. No, we would follow our desires, our simple pleasures our benign passions, and make something astonishing without even meaning to. Maybe we already have and just haven't noticed yet. Maybe we'll start tomorrow. Welcome to the Rope Walker Podcast, a collection of conversations with residents of the Corsicana Artist and Writer Residency Program. My name is Trey Burns. Today, I'm in conversation with A. Kendra Green, a writer and essayist who attended the residency in 2019. The opening was an excerpt from her collection of essays, The Museum of Whales You Will Never See, and Other Excursions to Iceland's Most Unusual Museums, published by Penguin Random House in 2020. The book is, as the title states, a collection of essays about the idiosyncratic museums of Iceland. But more than that, it's a book about curiosity, the glory of the niche, the pleasure, of the tangent. I liken her style to a Rube Goldberg machine. One observation leads us to another, a dense collection of ideas and variegated stories inventively tumbling forward, carrying us into the next page. We're also joined by Christina Lucas, 
the curator of exhibits and collections at the Pierce Collection Museum at Navarro College, and Don and Rita Capehart, who run the Capehart Communications Collection, a museum of telephone equipment inside an old Coca-Cola bottling plant near downtown Corsicana. Green, a lover of museums and former manager of collections at the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago, among other things, does a great job of weaving this conversation together, so I mostly try to stay out of the way. As always, you can learn more about A. Kendra Green and our guests on our website. And with that, let's jump right in. From reading Kendra's book and talking to her, uh, it seems like there's always a moment that begins a collection. So Don, what was, what was your origin? What was the inciting incident, to make use of my high school English classes, that caused you to begin collecting? I worked for Western Electric, and I had uh, about 20, 21 or two years with him. And I woke up one morning, and Western Electric no longer existed. Judge had thrown down his hammer and said, Western Electric's gone. And I asked around, where's my history going to be kept at? And nobody could tell me. And uh, Western Electric, to me, was a great part of American history. Everything was being discarded, and I wanted to save it. What was the first piece in your in your collection? <laughs> well, Oh, I, I hear Rita laughing. I, can Rita tell us this one? I told Kendra part of it earlier. He never saves anything small. It's always big and heavy. Rita, do you remember the first things? Big, heavy pieces of 11-foot something pieces of equipment that they switch gear that they had installed in the central office in Midland, Texas. We started with a few things earlier, little things, that I thought I could decorate with in the house. And then I told you about where we're living now, and I got 3,000 feet out of a 15,000-square-foot building, and the rest is his. Yes, he just said he won. He who has the most toys wins, and it ain't me. And, and, and the most toys, uh, Don, I think you were telling me that's some 50,000 objects altogether, 2,000 of them on display? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I got I got a lot, a lot of little stuff. And if we were there, Don and Rita, uh, what sorts of things would we see? What would you be sure to point out to us? Well, I, I have President Johnson's disaster switchboard from Austin, Texas, and I have part of this step-by-step uh, -step switch that came off of the battleship USS Missouri, which was signed and with, which was used in a peace treaty signing with Japan. And uh, well, the one that was on the Missouri went to a little town uh, just north of Abilene. And a few years later, when, it, when that little town grew too big for three-digit dialing, it was moved to Pyote, Texas, where it remained until 1990. And Pyote went from three-digit dialing to 10-digit dialing. And that switchgear was taken out. The other half of this switchgear was moved to the Battleship Texas storeroom, and I got half of it, and Battleship Texas got the other half. Okay, and, and we need to get to Christina, and maybe this is a clunky transition, but one of the amazing things that you have on display 
uh, at your museum is a collection of Civil War letters, which is a, a communication technology from another era. Yes. So uh, to start from a similar note, uh, the Pierce Collection started when uh, Mr. Pierce acquired a letter written by Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain to his wife, Fanny, or uh, Mr. Pierce's wife, uh, Peggy. And that was a gift to her because she was very interested in Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. She was reading The Killer Angels, and uh, he was her favorite historical figure. So uh, he bought that letter for her, and they both uh, started to develop a great interest in collecting these letters because they were so moved by that particular one, the letter, and just poring over it, looking at the details and uh, thinking about the historical context of them. So they wanted more. And that's kind of the focus of the uh, letter and document collection is personal communication, especially between families. I think one of my favorite pieces you have, uh, the letters that are conserving paper so that they are right, written left to right like we would imagine, and then given a quarter turn and written again uh, so that you have these, uh, these sort of two competing sets of lines at a, a 90 degree angle to each other. And it's still legible with that, right, that invention, right, that sort of technology to say all the things that you need to say to the people that you need to say them to uh, is so poignant. It is. Uh, we call those crosshatch letters. They're pretty difficult to read. Uh, it requires a bit of concentration and possibly some transcribing just to keep track of what you're looking at. Uh, but I think it really speaks to how deeply important it was for people to hear from their loved ones during this time, that time in history, because you wouldn't spend all that time trying to discern what somebody had said if you didn't really care about them. If I could uh, check in on technical terms, Don, when we were talking before, you were mentioning the difference between collections and museums and how the state of Texas looks at a museum differently than a collection. Would you, would you go into that? Well, the state of Texas looks at a museum that if it's ever disposed of, the state of Texas has something to say about how it's disposed of, and most of them belong to the state of Texas, the way that the Texas laws are written. But a collection uh, is totally private. You, you cannot use uh, tax-exempt uh, tax uh, status to buy stuff and things like that. So uh, you, you have no uh, codes like the 501s or nothing like that. That's the reason why that you, it's all privately owned. You, you have not used any tax uh, relief money or nothing. And that's the reason why it's a collection and not a museum. When I was in Iceland, one of the early things that I noticed was that these private collections were becoming museums just so easily. They were just slipping from one to the other, and I'd never seen anything like it. And it took me a while to understand the language well enough to see that there is no distinction in Icelandic. You have one word for museum and collection. Uh, so you'll see it when you drive by a library, and it's not a, a book museum. It's a book collection. You could talk about a group of sheep with the same term. It wouldn't be a museum of sheep. It would be a collection of sheep. 
and that these things have, in some ways need the distinction when they come into English. Uh, but in Icelandic, the big distinction in just trying to even count the number of museums is one of the ways you can do it is by thinking about accredited or not accredited, right? Who has filled out all the paperwork and got approved by a professional body to say, this is a museum. And I always think it sounds so lovely, right? When you talked about a museum in Texas can't be disposed of. Uh, it's the same idea when you get accredited in Iceland that the museum could could fold, could change, but the collection would, would be absorbed, right? The whole thing is part of the Museum of Iceland. And that that should be, I don't know, a relief, but these places are so personal. I've never met a museum director who felt the comfort, uh, right? They just saw how sad it would be if that community lost that collection. I, I understand that. Christina, I wonder if you could uh, point us to, well, uh, what a felicity of speech, uh, the point collection, right? Not just arrowheads, but other uh, forms of, of stone tool that have a, a blade or an edge to them. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that collection and uh, how it comes to be? Yes. So it's actually the Robert Redding collection. Uh, it has a, a few different names, but it began with Robert Redding and his family. And uh, Christina, can we know the other names? Oh, let's see. The Hunter Gatherers of the Blackland Prairie. That's a bit of a mouthful. So uh, a lot of people call it the Arrowhead Collection, which isn't completely accurate. Uh, so we try to discourage that a little bit. Um, the reason being that they aren't all arrowheads. There are many other uh, types of points and tools in the collection. So saying arrowhead collection is a little bit reductive. Um, but that began with a former mayor of Corsicana was really interested in uh, going to different locations and looking for uh, prehistoric artifacts, as many people do. It was his passion and hobby. So. He brought his family around to all these different places over the course of several decades and collected over 44,000 different uh, points and tools during that time. One of the things that I really think is amazing about this collection is the way that it's displayed, right? That, that's so many objects and they're on these uh, sort of felt mats. Uh, they, they're pieced to, together in the way that I think of uh, as, as quilting blocks. Mm -hmm. And the, the patterns of those those felts and the colors and the shapes are, I didn't notice a pattern to them as I was going through, but they seemed so uh, unique and right, this, this care and attention into their original display was fascinating, right? Suggested uh, whole other stories about this family and Yet, the museum was not there to satisfy my curiosity. Yes, uh, speaking of the way it's currently displayed, originally the uh, collection was given to the college and it was kind of displayed without any context. It was all on a wall in one of the buildings in the school. And people definitely say they remember seeing it at that time, but I think a lot of people seeing it thought it was cool, but didn't have any uh, inf further information about it other than maybe a, a plaque or something like that or a sign saying what it was. Uh, so almost more decorative than informative. 
Uh, John and Rita, that makes me wonder, what is your relationship to explanatory text? Uh, could someone go through the museum by themselves just reading, or do they need uh, one of you as the experts to guide them through? Well, I, I don't have much of it labeled as to what it is, but it's, it just take forever to, if you had to read what each piece was, it just take forever to get through it. With me giving the tours, it still takes over an hour for me to go through it and just show it to you and tell you what it, what the major pieces are because mm -hmm. there's so many. I got so much stuff on display. You can go through it and look at it and do and all, but most people don't know what was ever in the telephone office because they didn't give tours to uh, very mm -hmm. many people in a, on telephones in, in telephone offices. There were very few tours ever given anybody except children. I think a lot about how science museums are so often uh, functionally children's museums. And that's wonderful, right? That we should be uh, right, educating and engaging all members of this society, right? That everyone is connected to science. Uh, we should definitely be making sure we reach out to children, but that it feels like we assume that that sort of information uh, is just for the benefit of young people. When I do um, projects for museum visitors, it mostly are, it's mostly things that are designed to make sure that very young people can interact with them. And when I try to beckon in the parents uh, who are starting to pick up materials, uh, starting to coach their children on what to do, they get, uh, nervous, they don't want to be identified, no, no, right, uh, this is for them. And it makes me wonder, who is coming to the communications collection? Who's coming to the Pierce Museum? What what do your visitors uh, look like? What are you learning from them? We definitely have a older demographic. Uh, a lot of people come for the Civil War collection, um, and it's because they specifically have an interest in the Civil War. Uh, we do get younger people as well, um, children, surprisingly or not, uh, sometimes develop an interest in the Civil War pretty early in life, and they start reading about it from a young age. And uh, so you get to a point where you have people who have amassed years of knowledge about the Civil War, and it's been um, kind of a lifelong interest for them. And um, so we, we kind of have a diverse demographic, but I'd say children and uh, older people, a lot of times retired people, um, are kind of our two big audiences. Please tell me there's a subset of pen pals that choose to reunite at the museum. I love that concept. <laughs> I hope there are some out there. If, if, if there are, we hope they uh, find us and let us know. Yeah, uh, if you're a pen pal. <laughs> when I started uh, my museum career, I was a preparator, so I was, you know, touching up the walls and putting things in frames. And then I started getting print viewings and eventually I was managing the collection. And there, there's really nothing like managing a collection to think about all of the things that you have and how anyone is ever supposed to know that they exist. And I started doing this thing uh, whenever I got to visit uh, other institutions where I would say to my, my colleague there, hey, show me, show me the good stuff, right? I know you have a thing that is going to 
illuminate the world for me, right? That is going to be uh, surprising or, or shocking or unbelievable that I couldn't know to ask for right now. And I need you to show it to me. And most of the time, most of my colleagues uh, would say, well, I mean, yeah, but like, what are you interested in? What, like, what would you like to see? And, and I would try to make this case again. And, but when I can find the person uh, who says, yep, come with me, those are the, the, the best possible days. And I feel like the, the writing often has this, the same issue at it of uh, how to lead people to the glory of a thing they didn't, they couldn't have asked for because they didn't know it existed. Mm. Well, whenever I have people come here that are especially old telephone people, normally it takes me about an hour or so to ha have a tour. But them old bell heads come through here, it's no telling how long it takes us to get through it because we're both learning from each other and telling war stories. Don, did I just learn uh, a new word? Is bellhead a thing? Yes, ma'am. That, that's a term. I remember uh, a railroad museum person who taught me the terms buffers and foamers for different kinds of train enthusiasts. Yes, ma'am. Don, would you uh, tell me about the toys that have uh, accumulated in your collection, right, that you were thinking of everything telephonic including uh toy telephones well, <laughs> well you know, i we love all, it when we get ready to laugh <laughs> we all we all play with toy telephones i have toy telephones from germany and china and, and toy telephone trucks toy telephone trucks i just i've got all kinds of paraphernalia that dealt with the telephone communications industry. And toy intercoms. The toy intercoms. Oh, yeah. Now, you name it, we got it, honey. You know, you know the, uh, the uh, tin cans in a string? Yes, I do. The string phone? Do you mm -hmm. know that there's actually, I have hanging on my wall, the original ones? They are actually, we actually had a string phone in the telephone company. I had no idea. And all it was was a cowhide membrane stretched over a piece between two pieces of wood and a wire stretched down through a, a warehouse. And you'd have a bell on both ends and you'd ring that bell on each end and you could talk through that string, through that cowhide membrane the original uh string phones was actually a cowhide and a piece of wire oh. and they dates back to about 1890. as a bookbinder i think about the the cowhide as as the vellum and i sort of love the idea that the uh the, the same material that uh, could make a book yes, could make a telephone uh-huh uh, I hear that sometimes uh, the grandkids uh, see something that's really interesting and wonder if they can take it home. The great-grandson has been barred from taking anything else home without asking his mama first. <laughs> a, a collector on your hands, I see. 
So he has now started a collection at our house. He takes after his Dada. That's what he calls Donnie. That's what the granddaughters have called Donnie, Dada. So he has taken after his Dada. So I don't know what happens when we're gone. Uh, our granddaughter's going to have to deal with it. That's going to be her problem. <laughs> I've met a lot of children of founders uh, who talk about the genetics of collecting, uh, how it, it doesn't hit everyone in the family, but you, you know it when you see it. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, and he's got it big time. <laughs> I used to play a game when I got to lead print viewings, right? So I'd spend uh, an hour pulling things out of the vault and getting them set up on easels and preparing for a group to come in. And uh, before they left, I'd always ask, and I, and I had different hypothetical scenarios, right? That maybe there was a, a fire or maybe I was just going to turn and look the other way, but if they could walk out of the museum with something, what would they take? And it was always so interesting, uh, right? There were the people that were thinking very practically. They would look, they would pick something that they could carry out without it being too much trouble. Uh, there were people that would think about the walls they had at home. There would be uh, a, a kid who would say, well, what's the most expensive one? And figuring out what uh, what you respond to when you see it versus what you need to live with, right? What what you need to keep seeing, what you need to uh, have a different relationship with, right? With the, what you need to own or possess or want to take care of turns out to be really different things. Yeah, you never know what, what they're going to want. Donnie had an old gentleman come through one time. He had been a Western Electric supervisor or installer for years. And he saw one of these uh, ladder stops. They had these huge rolling ladders to work on this real tall equipment. And he was walking down through there one day, and he said, uh, that's my ladder stop. And Donnie said, oh, come on, man. I've got hundreds of these, and you've, you know, I've seen hundreds of these. And he said, that's mine. <laughs> and uh, Donnie said, well, how do you know they all look alike? That one's mine. Anyway, they went on through the tour and came back by that, that ladder stop, and he picked it off the wall and turned it over. He said, there's my initials. Donnie said, take it with you. Wow. The Skolara Folk Museum, which is the second oldest museum in Iceland, has this uh, remarkable collection, but in a lot of ways what's really amazing about it is this one person who has the institutional memory for it. And when Icelanders talk about it, they talk about how you go in and you talk to the curator and he points you to the milking stool that your grandmother gave. Uh, or you talk for a while and he comes back with the phone because he's put it together and he knows of a cousin of yours two fjords over uh, who's on the phone now inviting you over for coffee that you didn't know you were related to, right? People who can tell stories about going in and something about, right, the shape of their nose or their hands was enough for him to recognize them and make this connection and take them to a thing that linked them back to a grandparent. And I don't know that we, we talk about the ability of, of museums to connect us back to ourselves like this. Uh, and maybe it doesn't really happen for everyone. 
but I think it happens a lot more than we think. Mm. Yes, it does. It's so interesting how when I was a collections manager, what, uh, 10, 15 years ago, the idea of deaccession, it, it, was, it was a taboo word, right? You didn't talk about it. Occasionally, it would come up in uh, an article about some university president uh, thinking maybe they could sell the Georgia O'Keeffe in the art museum to pay for a new stadium or something, uh, right? It was uh, just a thing that wasn't done, that wasn't talked about. And just watching, I don't know, maybe the last 10 years, uh, as I think partly personally, we become very acquainted with the uh, issue of not having enough space, uh, right, of having too many things, and deaccessioning becoming uh, an idea that we can talk about that is actually part of good stewardship now. The, the director of the Icelandic National Museum was once telling me about how they have 10 barber's chairs, one in every color that company made. And her point at the time was, who needs 10 barber's chairs? We can, we can thin this out. Although I, every time I think about it, I think about how, uh, if I'm honest, I'm maybe not that interested in one barber's chair. But the idea that there were 10 different colors that that makes me wonder of everything you know just just for show um donnie bought an old catalog that showed everything at the time that western electric made 1917 he just said and his object then was to get one of everything that western made in that catalog it was 1285 pages wow yeah. Do you have rules for your collecting? Does Rita have rules for your collecting? As long as she don't know I'm bringing it in, I, I don't. It's like I'm thinking about uh, a, a bunch of different things right now about uh, family and collection. I think maybe the thing I want to ask, um, a place like Iceland has a lot of small museums because it's it's kind of a small place. I think the most recent population figures are 365,000 people in Iceland. Uh, in the whole world, there's only half a million speakers of the language. And if the, the biggest metropolitan area is 200,000 people, uh, that leaves right the, the remaining third of the population and the rest of the country to have uh, all those museums in often small places. Uh, they, I love that the Scholar Museum is, uh, I'd written that it was in a town of 21 people and sent it to the museum staff to, to check and make sure that there weren't any errors in the essay. Uh, and they wrote back to me to say, well, it's, it's not a town. We, we have a standard in Iceland. You need 50 people to have a town and we have 21. Uh, Christina, what do you, uh, are there things you notice that, about what it means for museums to be in smaller towns, oh, either for the town or for the museum? Um, I think something that we hear a lot is, I guess, maybe the unexpectedness of museums in small towns, that there's something quirky about them, uh, that, oh, I wouldn't expect to see a museum in a place like this, <laughs> whatever they may mean by that, but that maybe people expect 
for there to be museums in large cities and don't expect to see them in small towns. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Uh, it makes me wonder, are they in any way serving a different function or if it's just easier for uh, greater populations to have uh, the density or the resources to have museums? But it seems like a thing that um, everywhere benefits, right? They're sort of like parks or libraries. Mm -hmm. We we know what we we have the personal experience we have the the research uh that these are benefits to us that they are uh, an enormous part of our well-being i i feel like i want to hold on up and go to you use the word quirky which as somebody who spent a long time paying attention to small museums comes up a lot and i find part of me wants to reclaim it uh, for the gloriousness of it and part of me just bristles, right, that, that worries that it uh, is not seeing the, right, the uniqueness, the individuality, uh, the, the daring to be uh, off from center, uh, right, from not being quite what you expected. The power of the, the, the niche focus, uh, right, the, the specialization is so revealing. Yes, that I feel like there may be a, a, a bit of an association between the size of a museum and what the immediate impression of it might be, uh, especially in a city versus a town, that uh, a large museum in a city could be thought of as maybe grand, you know, fancy, uh, that sort of idea. And funny that we, uh, I think about like the museum icon on the phone, the, the sort of standard, the, the default vision of the museum is the sort of Greek temple, white column, encyclopedic collection, big city museum, when just by the numbers, that's not usually what they are. And historically, that's sort of the anomaly, right? We've been holding on to things. Uh, we've been creating not just cabinets of wonders, but Athenaeums, right? We've been having groups of people uh, and families and individuals and amateur naturalists and soul collectors holding on to things uh, and making them available for other people to see for a lot longer than the sort of uh, enormous institutional nation building sorts of projects that what, start happening in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Don, do you collect other things? Oh, uh, yes, ma'am. As long as it deals with communications, I collect other products for other companies. Yes, ma'am. And do you but, collect anything outside of the, the telephonic collection? Do you have, uh, I don't even know, right? Bottle caps or keychains? Is, is collecting a thing that uh, you've done in some capacity for a long time, or is it? Uh, specific to this interest if you don't communicate if you don't deal with communications no ma'am i don't have another collection other than my bride christina are you a collector do you have uh do you see echoes of your museum work in other places in your life oh goodness um really the only collection i personally have is a knife collection somehow that suddenly seems like a communication collection too <laughs> That's, that's a dangerous woman if she collects knives. 
your best behavior, Don. <laughs> I also feel like we should invite ourselves over for Thanksgiving because uh, I bet there's a carving knife in there. There certainly is. <laughs> this has been a, a really great conversation and it's been a, a pleasure to listen to. Um, Christina, do you have any final thoughts to add? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, I hope that, um, you know, uh, we all continue to to do well. And I'm, I'm so glad to be able to talk with you all. And uh, I appreciate you. And thank you for uh, having me on. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you, Christina. Uh, Don and Rita, do you, do you have famous last words is there one more thing you want to underscore or or say before we go well if you ever get a chance to come to corsicana or give us a call and come by and see us and young lady why don't you come over sometime and give us a call and come see our collection we've seen you parts of yours and we enjoyed the interview and we'd love to hear from you all again someday uh it has been such a pleasure to be on this party line with you Thank you for for checking in, for uh, sharing your stories, for giving us uh, a view uh, behind the scenes. It's really been lovely. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Trey.